questions. Today's guest is already making waves with his newest novel, Open Throat. We are talking to Henry Hoke today. Henry Hoke is the author of five books. His work appears in No Tokens, Electric Literature, Triangle House, Carve, and the Flash Noir anthology, Tiny Crimes. Born to Alabamians, Henry grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. His play at Sundown premiered at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and his short film Taking Shape screened on HBO. He co-created the performance series Enter Text in Los Angeles and has taught at Cal Arts and the UVA Young Writers Workshop. He had its humor at the offering and lives in New York City. In Open Throat, a queer and dangerously hungry mountain lion lives in the drought-devastated land under the Hollywood sign. Lonely and fascinated by humanity's foibles, the lion spends their days protecting a nearby homeless encampment, observing hikers complain about their trauma, and in quiet moments, grappling with the complexities of their gender identity, memories of a vicious father, and the indignities of sentience. When a man-made fire engulfs the encampment, the lion is forced from the hills down into the city. The hikers call L.A., here spelled E-L-L-A-Y. As the lion confronts a carousel of temptations and threats, they take us on a tour that spans the cruel inequalities of Los Angeles and the toll of climate grief. But even when salvation finally seems within reach, they are forced to face down the ultimate question. Do they want to eat a person or become one? Hi, Henry. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Alex. It's a pleasure. I want to start this interview by talking about a passage early in the book um, when our mountain lion narrator is overhearing conversations along the hiking trail below the Hollywood sign. Uh, he hears two girls having a conversation about, quote unquote, scare city. We all live in scare city under capitalism, one of the girls says. So we all have to make an effort to deprogram a scare city mentality as like our central driving force. Can you talk a bit about what constitutes a scarcity mentality? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, scarcity was something I found to really locate, um, locate a specific hang up that um, our lion was having where it's grasping for why it's sort of desperate and, um, and struggling. And um, it seems like it's in the air and in the ether of what people are talking about, which is, you know, just mm -hmm. scarcity, right? Scarcity meaning that like, there are limited resources. Um, there are limited, there's limited access to those resources. Um, I think so many people that, you know, I would overhear or converse with think about scarcity and especially in relation to like, to, uh, you know, career and, and to um, everything from competition between people um, mm -hmm. to competition for, you know, money. And I think that that was sort of, um, that was key in me thinking about this lion who is hearing about something that humans are, you know, aware of or dealing with or, you know, complaining about, but, you know, the lion is dealing with it on a level of like just abject hunger and, you know, having no way to, um, to survive. And, uh, it's an, it's an environment that's been, you know, slowly drought devastated and more and more, you know, encroached upon by humans. Um, and so the scarcity idea was that, yeah, it would hear it as two separate words and as a place because it hears about Hollywood. It hears about Griffith Park. It hears about the canyon. It hears about all kinds of things. L-A-E-L-L-A-Y. 
Um, and I thought, okay, well, something larger exists for this lion, and that is scarcity. I would also, I guess, like to hear uh, your thoughts then on what you makes a text an anti-capitalist text. I think that so many of the texts and novels that um, we're encountering, especially right now, are really aware of capitalism's toll on everything from the climate to our psyches. Um, and I think that... Um, so I wonder, like, the distinction between, like, capitalist aware, you know, um, capitalist, uh, you know, deconstructive as opposed to anti-capitalist. I think, you know, you know, I'm, I'm an anti-capitalist, you know, I'm a socialist. But, um, but, I think that, um, but I think that it's hard to really capture that without, like, a direct engagement with that ethos. I think that um, in this book, it's, it's really showing... Um, how people are struggling with the concept um, and the effects of capitalism. Um, and I think that the cat, um, this is a mountain lion, you know, living adjacent to, to Los Angeles um, proper um, in Griffith Park, really sees um, a lot of different sides of capitalism, um, sees everything from, you know, a community of the unhoused that it lives near um, to people who are, you know, just sort of perceivably have privilege or have, you know, Hollywood jobs or have, the space and time to hike in Griffith Park, you know, during the daytime, you know, and talk about not having jobs, but, you know, don't people, wouldn't it be nice to have a job, but yet they're, you know, living here in this expensive city um, and in community. And I think that that's, um, that's the way it confronts those uh, overheard passages in those moments. And then all the way to actually living later in the book under a house um, of someone, you know, who has, you know, a, a large house in Los Feliz, which is, you know, not a, not a cheap neighborhood. And um, this person is like a famous person um, and, and their daughter. And I think that's sort of um, that luxury that it then experiences by being sort of welcomed into this home in a very bizarre way that, you know, I won't spoil too much, but, or we'll talk about later, um, really shows the spectrum of, um, you know, this cat seeing what like a room is, you know, like what, mm -hmm. what being pampered is like, what being safe and fed is like. And these are things that it had sort of not experienced until then. Um, and what that does internally. And I think that's sort of, I guess, my way of creating, you know, like I said, capitalist aware text um, and somewhat anti-capitalist, which is this idea of like, there's sort of a poison from within through all these stages, from the stages of, you know, hunger and scarcity mm -hmm. to the stages of like having a lot and being cared for and, um, and having that, um, the resources, but then thinking to the people who have, you know, been displaced that it used to be in community with or around and what it means about themselves that they're just accepting, you know, mm. food and shelter and everything on this level that they know not everyone has and certainly not any animals have, <laughs> you know, wild animals. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, the, I don't actually have this question written down. I almost just want your clarification right now. Um, you don't use gender markers for this mountain lion. Is that intentional? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been interesting um, as far as, you know, reviews and readers. Um, it's been, it's been nice in a way it's been affirming. Um, I mean, it's, it, this is, you know, in a large way, a book about gender affirmation, um, but not gender affirmation along, you know, the binaries that, that, we humans struggle with mostly <laughs> in our societies. Um, but I think that, yeah, I, I specifically don't have gender, um, I, you know, I use gender markers for like humans that the cat's encountering, 
pretty consistently because that's like how they refer to themselves or, and sometimes mm-hmm. I don't have them um, for where it's like, you know, um, unimportant, but I think the cat in general, right. In reviews and in readers, some, some have said he, some have said they, some have referred to this as a trans character. And I think all that's like totally valid and, and in the text. So I, I really welcome that. Um, I think a lot of the he is because there's this, you know, male, you know, gendered by humanity as male bodied mountain lion P22. That was a clear, you know, inspiration and some, uh, a, a mountain lion I was aware of. And, you know, I said this yesterday at a, at a, a class I was visiting, I was saying, Oh yeah, we moved to the neighborhood around the same time. <laughs> like the mountain no lion way. crossed the 405 into the, into Griffith park around, and lived in this house in Los Feliz around the same time I had moved to Los Feliz, um, and was hiking in the park. So I always thought of, you know, as a sort of LA contemporaries, like, landing there ending up there and not really knowing what was going on um i felt that kinship in this funny way um because i felt kind of bizarrely out of place as well there um being from the south and then new york and the east coast um right but the um but the idea behind um i guess this gender journey is that you know i mean i i'm i'm <laughs> i'm a genderqueer person and i was writing a lot from my own sort of longing and confusion and and struggle um and also just from like how i view a world that projects so much onto us around mm-hmm. gender binaries and that it's really bizarre to do that to an animal, you know, to like, to put that on an animal. I don't know. For a while they were calling this cat, like, you know, celebrity and giving it like celebrity n- names, like, um, just, you know, male celebrities. Like it was the Brad Pitt of mountain lions or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. and I was just like, yeah, that doesn't really work for me. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I sort of, I was thinking about it in my vision of this cat. It was sort of like, this was an alternate cat. Like this was a this wasn't P twenty two, P twenty two kind of has like maybe a cameo in my book, but in an alternate reality where like it didn't make it across the four hundred five and and died. But I have this other cat that's sort of more me cat that that did make it and is in this new situation because P twenty two was you know tracked and you know cared for at multiple yeah. points by by um by Park Service and others. Um, and I think um this is this cat is much more like isolated and um and only very rarely connects with humans or encounters humans um because I, I yeah I, I just didn't want that element to be too much of the book i wanted that you know especially like editing it during covid and everything i just kept thinking about isolation and loneliness and and not feeling care and feeling shut out of situations so um yeah but so this was sort of like my my chance to explore gender um in a way that was outside of just like a direct human experience um, where this cat is not even sure, you know, what gender is in its in its own ordering of the world. You know, it has a mother and a father who sort of fulfilled those roles in specific ways in like cat society, right? Um, but then once it's on its own, it's like it knows it like has desire for, you know, male cats, <laughs> you know, and then it has this sort of like brief crush and you know tragedy um, with with maybe the P twenty two lion. Um, but then it really is that you know. You know, and again, I'm getting far into the plot, um, but hopefully all of y'all have read this when you listen to this or get excited <laughs> and we'll talk about it later. But there is a there is a, um, a situation where the um, the the girl who lives, the teen girl who lives in the house later on where the cat ends up um, is, you know, perceiving and referring to my cat who does have like, you know, you know, male gendered body parts, whatever, um, is um referring to them as a goddess and as a she, Mm -hmm. and that becomes really like affirming, um, for Mm -hmm. my cat. So this is sort of, this is, those are the elements of my avoidance of really clear gender markers and, um, and us using they, especially in the, in the copy, but 
I can't control it. I think it'll be fun to see how people um, encounter that thread. I mean, even even in my interview, even in when I was writing it and when I was imagining it, it's it's he. Like you know, like I I yeah. planted yeah, yeah. that right onto this mountain lion so quickly. Yeah. Um, so in one of my early notes for this interview, I literally just wrote allegory for HIV, but also literally a mountain lion. Um, cause there were really parts of this story, mainly towards the end, like post the dream sequence at Disney, followed by that sharp return to reality, uh, when the mountain lion is very othered, uh, from a specific passage, quote, the new woman sees me. And of course the new woman freezes, everyone freezes or runs. Those are the two things everyone does. I know this at the surface is the mountain lion recognizing fight or flight mentality, but I couldn't help but think of this whole bit uh, through the struggles of the LGBTQ plus community and all of what we've faced and are still facing today. Um, In what ways are queer communities confronted with fight or flight mentalities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's really, yeah, that passage really speaks to, to like, you know, we have this wild animal, we have something that's perceived as dangerous, or as, mm-hmm. of course, very exactly. other and threatening. And, you know, obviously, like, that's more and more present um, in the rhetoric, right? And, and I don't mean it isn't more present than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and especially during the AIDS crisis. But um, this this thing of, um, but there's such a deluge, right, of violent rhetoric mm-hmm. towards trans people, towards queer people. Um, and it is like, all of it is built on perceiving us and our, you know, our community and everyone we're in allyship with as a threat. You know, it's like they have to make us threatening or as like, as you say, like dangerous, there's a contagion, right? There's all these awful references to like grooming and everything, you know, that's been since time immemorial, this horrible um, depiction of like any kind of anything, I mean, any mentorship instruction, anything from queer people to other people at all is seen as predatory. And I think obviously such a projection from a majorly predatory hetero world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, but that is, yeah, I mean, and and that's, that's present. The thing is, you know, I wrote this so um, directly and viscerally and was working with, you know, probably for the, the most of any book I've written, I was working with a an immediacy, a present tense, a plot, you know, really specific, tight, complicated situations, you know, that deal with hunger, that deal with literally being on fire, you know, and, and, um, you know, running from cars, like all kinds of things that are so direct, you know, that that was propulsive for me. And so I was hitting on these poetic moments and these moments with resonance to identity and to politics, but they were really like, they were sort of built in as incidental to what the line is just actually struggling with in the plot. And so I kept finding those, those moments where I was like, oh, this really hits me hard. Why does that hit me? Why do I linger on this moment or let this, like you said, the line you read, like let these lines about how like people always do one of two things, you know, they freeze or they run. Um, And then it starts to take on a lot more significance because again, this book is, you know, 18,000 words and unpunctuated. So it's like, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's a lean book, right? It's, it's a fillet, you know, it's, it, it has that, um, things take on a lot of meaning. And, And the more I read back over, I'm like, oh yeah, wow, that really hits me differently this time it was such a tossed off line because I was just getting to each moment when I was writing it, you know, but I I love that there's resonances like that. And I think that, yeah, this, both the otherness and the threat are things that are all about being in the world as, as, as a queer person. (laughs) Yeah. In what ways does 
the idea of toxic masculinity come into play in open throat. Yeah. Negative male figures are, are, are big in this book. Um, in that there are like, there's the father who is, you know, and in a way that was just sort of tracked onto like how, um, you know, the, the, the not, not exhaustive research I did into big cats and their communities, you know, um, and especially the mountain lions in, in California, like there's sort of like a, a pretty clear time when like, yeah, the males aren't like around, but they are like in their own territory and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily welcome other, you know, younger males into that territory. Um, so I think that just like that, that was an easy way to springboard into, you know, the dynamic of like a violent father or a father who is unaccepting of, uh, you know, a child who is maybe more attached to their mother, you know, like many are, but you know, that becomes very, a pattern in families. Um, that relationship is not, you know, from, from my personal life. (laughs) Um, so it really came from, you know, I'm grateful, you know, I have have a a great supportive father, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in so many ways. Um, like literarily and identity wise. Um, but, um, but I think that, um, that came from just this, this natural thing that could, could push a lion to have to head into very dangerous circumstances, crossing what my lion calls the long death, which is, you know, this, this 405 freeway. Um, and I was like, okay, well, right. There's this territory that's, that's sort of dominated by its father figure and its mother is attacked. And then the lion has to flee. Um, and that's sort of, um, that was just such an important part of the lion's sort of, you know, backstory that it talks about at one point, it like, it would like to talk about or express in therapy, like therapy might help with this because it hears about therapy <laughs> right. exhaustively from the hikers. Um, but I think that the other element is that there's this, you know, there's this fixation on a, um, on a specific male figure. Um, the man with the whip is what they're called. And, um, he's like present right at the beginning um, of the book and it's sort of, it's sort of like a, a random uh, guy dressed up as Indiana Jones in the park <laughs> with a whip and a hat and his friends are taking pictures of him. This is, you know, the opening scene. Um, this is a scene from my real life. So that was just a fun little um, way, way in is that um, I had a neighbor in Los Angeles who did, you know, Indiana Jones like impersonation oh, or I don't, oh. I don't even really know the context. I know at Halloween parties and then at other times, maybe for par- other parties or something, but he would practice with the whip outside my, my, um, my apartment. So I would hear this, you know, whip crack. And, um, and at one point at the Halloween party, someone, you know, was like, again, this is this opening scene was asking him to, to lightly flick their nuts. Like, like <laughs> they, they lay down on the concrete and we're just like with their legs spread and we're like, just, just flick them, just see if you can do it. Just like hit me right in the nuts. Um, so just sort of a, just like a dominant, interesting Angelino figure, like in my life um, at the time was just this person who, you know, had this, had this identity, extra identity. Um, and that's, you know, they were t- totally nice, you know, guy in most ways and just fine neighbor, but a very quirky thing. And, um, but I take this sort of figure as, as, um, as a, you know, maybe unfairly to that person, but in general is like, they start to represent um, a certain kind of masculinity in Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there's, and, and, uh, and sort of, a the encroachment of, of gentrification and of, um, um, I think of the inequality because there's, you know, there's a later scene where this person is, um, is sort of disgusted by the, by the unhoused people who have a, a small, uh, tent community near where the mountain lion, you know, has territory mm-hmm. and, and, um, they sort of live in symbiosis, right? Like the cat and this group of unhoused people. Uh, and so the, this this figure recurs um, the man with the whip as as manifestations of different things from both like 
something to desire because like, you know, he has like a big neck vein and, and my cat is hungry and my cat sees it and wonders if he can, if he can get this guy um, just to himself. And then later as, as, as sort of a threat because of, um, because of like his ability to make fire, I'll just say. And then um, later on this, this recurring figure is a little bit of patriarchy in general and yeah, toxic maleness as it hits different points of like trying to impress your friends. So you do destructive things um, causing harm to communities through um through your feeling of entitlement you know that like this is your land or whatever like this is yeah. this is your land your space um the people you have pushed out are now in fact some criminal element right you know like police them drive them out shut them down um and also in in the figure of um of slaughter who is the father of the teen girl who's so he's sort of like a former former or aging rock star um that owns the house where where my cat comes to live, um, he has a couple, you know, sort of intense moments. And he's maybe the most, um, he's sort of like the, the one who would poke holes in or, or fuck with the gender affirmation that's happening, you know, because there's parts where he's like aggressively demand, like pointing out body parts of the cat. So, you know, yeah, I have a lot, I have a lot of moments where, where, where men are men. And that's all you really need to do to depict toxic masculinity, I would say. I mean, write men as men. That's it. That's all you gotta do. Um, there is um, a thread that kind of runs throughout Open Throat that I thought was just really, really interesting. Um, whenever the mountain lion comes across other animals in the, you know, quote unquote wild, um, in coming across an owl, they say, quote, the bright world below the park at night is a blur to me when I try to look out over it. But if I get close enough to a creature's eye, I can see what it sees. And in the owl's eye, I see LA clearly. Uh, this happens again later in the scene at the zoo. Um, but I am curious about what you're trying to explore here. Um, are you saying the world becomes clearest to us when we have the opportunity to explore additional perspectives? Um, and then I want to add a layer to that. Um, how does the mountain lion's predatory nature then add to this idea of perspective? Mm. Yeah. I love that question. It was a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, that was really, my aim was to just early on, again, I was, I went to, to, you know, guest teach at a, or just to visit a class yesterday. And we talked about some of these aspects of the book and I was talking about sort of the research and the research getting me just far enough to like be poetic. And then I was kind of like, now I'm going to separate a little and even like tracking the actual animal that pseudo inspired at p22 i sort of stopped doing that because i was like well i'm way too close to this like i don't i don't want to know you know and and they just were put down at the end of last year um sadly and and strangely in the timing of this book but i think um so there's a big eulogy happening in general and mourning happening in los angeles and other places about this cat that everybody you know sort of made into a celebrity but i think um but thinking about the research was just like right like you know they have very their vision is quite close um, where they have clear vision. So there's, there's a lot about like, um, you know, I can, I can see what's, I can just see what's right in front of me because there's these people mm -hmm. who are looking out on this vista of Los Angeles out over the smog and over the sprawl and they're seeing something. And this is just the cat is encountering this mostly just through what is suggested. So there is a lot of this like sort of strange cloudy world the cat lives in. Um, and so moments where it does get this refraction, right. And that's and in an owl's eye. It can see the sprawl at night. 
and that's the because that's close but that's a reflection and i just i guess i just thought that was really compelling i, I kind of just also for convenience sake i wanted like the cat to experience that in some way that it might not mm -hmm. just naturally later on it becomes much more kind of surreal but um but there's moments where like seeing the world or like phones through like little slaughter who's the teen girl he calls her little slaughter um through her perspective and how she talks about things and how she looks at things um, thinking about phones and seeing its own reflection, like it doesn't see its reflection for a very long time in this book. You know, mm -hmm. it sees fragments of itself in a phone screen. Um, but I guess, like, I think that we all we all get perspective through others um, and through getting a glimpse of their experience or, or a little bit of you know whether it's empathy or just like encountering. And I think we're in a we're in a major like boom of that but in a strange way it's you know like we, we are we are given access to so many people's perspectives right now um you know we have a we have a tiny you know we have a, a keyhole into everyone's you know insta stories or tiktoks or whatever we're getting their own reflection of themselves um and I'm, there's probably apps i don't even have yet but um but you know and and there was i think there was one I, i'm gonna i'm not gonna know the name of the app but um but um a couple people I knew were talking about it where you just show what's like a very brief clip of like just exactly where you are at a certain time. Like you don't get to like uh, dress it up or whatever. Do you know what I'm talking about? Be real. Be real. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. that is like, okay, so there's this happening and threading through of like, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not just branding or yeah. dressing up. We're like yeah. encountering these little moments. And I think that that's the cat so much because again, this is present tense. It's visceral. It's often connected to, you know, fear or hunting or you know things like mm -hmm. that and and i guess connecting to the predator like what you said the, the predatory nature of this cat and its perspective i mean i think that like there are many moments in this book where i think that you know people will relate to the hunger and also the fear and the frustration um and sort of the overwhelm of the world you know i, I wrote a lot through this about you know from earthquakes to fire to the drought like these things that i was just and floods even that, that i encountered in la but also just like internally there's a part about like this shutter that's the earthquake but that it stays inside the cat um yeah. and i have like i have like a um i have a specific um nerve disorder that gives me like these tremors in my in my core like sometimes unendingly for months or weeks and it was certainly happening in the time that this book is kind of a reflection on in los angeles and um you know it's kind of a debilitating um disability for better or for worse but um and i'm doing okay but but it is something that i kept thinking about um i kept thinking about what happens to us internally um because of our both our desire and then also how aggressive what's happening in our world and around us and coming from other people and coming from other sources is doing to us and so i guess um more than like the sort of the inherent predatory nature is really just about survival for this cat, you know, until it's not. And I think that's what kind of the journey is in a way. It's like, right. Like when do I, and you know, um, Brontes Purnell, the amazing writer and, and, and musician and everything. Um, but, um, but said, you know, about this book, like that, you know, um, it reminds us that like survival is not our only job in life, you know? And I think that sort of connects to this. It's like, yeah, once you are, going beyond survival and accessing things that are deeper and desire and seeing what you are in the wake of trauma and hardship and maybe even an affirmation of your identity like what are you and what will you do with it i think that's the real crux of this whole arc of this cat is like right like is it still 
bloodthirsty? You know, is mm-hmm. it still, um, you know, is vengeance something that it really wants um, and can accept and can live with the consequences of? And I think that that's a really key thing for like how I feel about the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think, do you think the mountain lion uses existentialism as a tool for survival? And do you think existentialism is a helpful tool for survival? I think I would never say something is helpful or not really. I mean, I, I personally find it um, unavoidable, mm. but um, difficult. Mm-hmm. Existential, you know, I can't, I can't not have existential crises pretty consistently. Um, and even like with the disability that I briefly referred to, or I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe exhaustively referred to a few minutes ago, um, it often puts me in a state of thinking I'm, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of a panic disorder. So it puts me in a state of like, oh, I'm going to die. Like I'm dying right now. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so that does keep, keep me a little bit on my toes with existentialism. You know, I can't just go like, okay, I'll wake up today and it'll just be a day and I can forget about mortality or about, you know, what we do on the earth and why. Um, and I think, yeah, obviously this is, this is a cat with major existential crises occurring over and over. And I think that's largely because it's absorbing human language and human bullshit like throughout. And, and there's a part where, you know, it's, there's a, you know, I don't even know what to call them. There's a chapter, a section, (laughs) a, a brief, a fugue in here. Um, stanza where it's really just about so many things coming at the cat and it says, you know, I have so much language in my brain and nowhere to put it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just that, yeah, like all these concepts are somewhat beyond the cat's understanding, but they're having visceral experience enough to like need language and to need to parse these things. And so dealing with things like scarcity, right? Like it understands in a way what they mean because it is hungry and it can't, you know, there's a part where it talks about the concept of poetry, even just trying mm-hmm. to figure out the abstract themes, um, almost any abstraction that it gets in contact with becomes an existential crisis because it's trying to order it around much more like, again, feral survival needs. Um, right. And I think that's that's maybe what, what, I, what I would say about that. I don't know. And maybe that's how I feel, too. Um, that's how I feel, too. I'm like, yeah, like, you know does existentialism serve my needs right now? And usually I'm like, mm-hmm. no time to meditate. Like I'm like nope, <laughs> time to, time to clear my mind because it's just not going to go well if I go there today, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about, and, and we did kind of address the kill sharer and how the kill sharer may or may not be P 22. Um, yeah. but I do want to talk about their, their relationship and the longing there. Um, and for listeners who might not have read open throat yet, the kill sharer is, is this other mountain lion who's living in the outskirts of the city kind of at the same time, um, as our narrator, uh, he and the narrator share a deer that the, that, you know, we'll call him P 22 for now, uh, the P 22 sure. kills and quote, uh, when you meet a big cat who will share a kill, you can't let go of him easily. Immediately after this statement, the narrator watches two men have sex in a cave and fantasizing fantasizes about connecting that way with the kill sharer. Um, we also find out that the kill sharer dies on the freeway soon after this encounter with our narrator. Quote, if we'd cross together, would we both have made it? The narrator asks. Maybe a big question here. Um how do we deal with loss when it's our environment that causes the loss itself? 
Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think that's a beautiful question. Again, thank you for these. <laughs> this is such a wonderful <laughs> interview. Um, it's making me feel a lot. Um, and yeah, thinking about that, that relationship again, right? Like there's, there's a very brief, you know, queer relationship um, between mountain lions. And it's not just a mountain lion in its own identity or a mountain lion encountering a uh, hookup um, in the park between men. Um, I think it's, it's really that like, it's funny to say our environment, because I think like it is, it is, you know, the, the idea of tragedy being just tragedy, I think is complicated, you know, because I think obviously, you know, earlier we talked about, you know, um, the AIDS crisis and the idea that like, well, you know, this wasn't just an unavoidable, horrible, you know, plague for, for, for gay people. You know, it was like they weren't cared for, they weren't supported. There wasn't mm -hmm. work done when it, you know, there was amazing work done by the community and by some people who, you know, gave a shit. But right, there's so much unnecessary loss and tragedy. And I think, and partially like this, again, this isn't a one-to-one -one connection I'm drawing, but this idea of like um, the loss between, you know, well, you know, and this, this, my cat who's longing for this male cat who may or may not, you know, we're not sure they're like, you know, <laughs> they're maybe not going steady or anything, but there's this connection. And that's part of, you know, my, my long life of, of, of sexuality. But I think um, there's, there's something about that it's a freeway, you know, that takes the cat the, the love interest cat away from from my my protagonist we'll call it Hecate because that's what um, little slaughter calls my yeah. mountain line so Hecate Hecate loses this um this um you know love interest mountain lion to the freeway right to an aggressive human construction you know mm -hmm. um the long death you know again is is what they call it um it really any freeway but in this case it's the 405 freeway on the you know, near the west side of Los Angeles um and I think that that to me is like, right, there's this sort of this like unavoidable dark force of what all kinds of, you know, unfortunate or predatory elements of humanity have put in our world. And it results in loss. It results in, you know, unfathomably, you know, uh, unnecessary loss. Right. <laughs> and that was sort of, that was sort of how I was thinking about it. Um, and I think that, you know, the grief is, and again, this gesture of like, there's this thing of like, you know, should I just go and die too? Um, mm -hmm. And, and I think that was really deeply connected to how we feel despair in the, in the face of, of, of tragedy we know is caused by things that we feel no power over or no ability to, to change or control. Um, I think it's hard. It's hard to grieve. It's hard to grieve innocently innocently or maybe i mean like cleanly mm -hmm. because there's so much rage and and so much righteous um frustration and devastation um i'm speaking quite abstractly but i think you know what i mean you know? <laughs> that like these you know the unavoidable forces that cause loss that cause you know people to not be cared for um are just constant and and oppressive and it's really hard to know how to shift that um without you know engaging and fighting and writing about it and writing metaphors for it. Yeah. <laughs> On a final note, um, I do just kind of want to say that Open Throat was such an arc brag for everybody, uh, everyone that I knew. Uh, like every now and then there's just this book that people have to get their hands on. Um, Open Throat really being one of the first ones of 2023 that struck the collective conscious. I guess especially in literary circles and in queer circles that I'm definitely attuned to. Um, what do you attribute to this reaction and how has it felt for you so far? 
Gosh, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been really, really wonderful to have so many readers connecting with the book and connecting with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm very like, you know, I'm, I'm not very famous or anything. So it's nice. It's just, I'm very accessible. So it's fun to just dialogue with people and, you know, repost them, whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not right. such a deluge in my life that I can't appreciate all the, all the kind words and, um, and reposts and, you know, but I, th- I think it really is like, you know, my, well, I mean, my whole team are amazing. <laughs> everyone from, you know, my agent, um, and, and then everyone at, um, at FSG and MCD and now at Picador who are publishing in the UK, who've done a wonderful mm-hmm. job with, um, yeah, even, you know, their ARCs are like this shiny little special thing. <laughs> and I think just, um, I think part of it is that I wrote this book, um, out of a lot of urgency and a lot of ferocity. And I really wrote it to be immediate because I just, you know, and I think all my books are quite immediate and they're also quite terse and, you know, accessible and engaged, you know, um, none of them are long. None of them are, you know, page upon page of full paragraphs. You know, I just, I'm more of a a poetic, um, just sort of, you know, succinct, distilled writer. It's just what I've always valued and what I enjoy most. And I can't really write more than I write. Um, so I think that just the meaning that like, once you're in, it just takes you on the ride. And I think that is, especially for, um, communities of readers, you know, of, of readers who are interested enough in books to get on mailing lists to get early copies of books, which is phenomenal. And I'm so glad that all of y'all exist across the board, whether you're booksellers who are, you know, I'm so grateful for, or just, you know, people, enthusiasts who have social media accounts or just enjoy um, reviewing or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful because I think that um, I know how many books um, you get and how many things, you know, you, you dip into and try. And I think this is one where I was like, well, what I know is that this won't take up a lot of people's time. You know, like it, mm. it's something that you, you really are you're going sort of on a roller coaster ride. And you can you can read it in one sitting. Um, I like especially if you're someone who designates time to read. Like I I, I read probably for a couple hours a day that I try to set aside for myself. I just really read and I do that more. I read more than I write. You know, even. Um, but I'm like, okay, yeah. But if I had if I had a solid and actually I rode the subway to to and from Columbia yesterday and I like read the book. Um, I was just like it was, it was about an hour long subway ride one way um, for me from Brooklyn. And, um, and I, I read it and I was like, Oh yeah, cool. Okay. So it's like, you can read it in about the length you could watch a movie. And I think that that's, um, especially these days, if you want to, if you, if it carries you and <laughs> many of my, many of my friends or some of the people who blurbed it were like, yeah, I read it in one sitting. Like I just went right through it and didn't want to stop and it'll carry you. And I think that really to be able to digest or devour something that quickly, um, is something I like with a book sometimes, you know, and, and then maybe to read it a second time, you know, or let it devour you a little bit and come back to it or come back to passages you like. And so in a way, that's, I think, what I, what I set out to do. And it seems like it's, it's, I hope, I was hoping it was a generosity um, and not people wouldn't feel like, I don't know, shortchanged or something, but, but I, I don't want to take up a lot of your time, but I want to take up, um, but I want to give you a lot. Um, I want to give you a lot to chew on, a lot of, a lot to think about, to feel about. Um, and that seems to be a lot of what the reaction is. And I'm immensely grateful for it i think again as you've said with these lines that resonated with you and made you think about larger things like Mm -hmm. yeah even for me like there are lines that hit me that i wrote i didn't think about really writing and this isn't to say like i'm a genius or whatever but no but but something of me is that genius that isn't us you know that isn't something we own like hit me enough that i can i can have new encounters with my own random syntax and passages and, and little little morsels and it'll make me feel different and think about different things every time. And um, yeah, those are some of the things I treasure about the book. Yeah. 
it's outside of me now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do think the book, you know, even though it is a nice short length, which is palatable for a lot of readers, it's it's all meat, no bones. Yeah. And that's it for us today, Henry. Thank you so much. This was great. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I hope I didn't scare you too much with my big uh, <laughs> abstract questions. No, I was delighted. Thank you, Alex. This was, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.